Hello again. As we are entering the holiday season, I wanted to reshare one of my favorite episodes from last year. You can double up your pending turkey meals and your favorite podcast servings. Dr. Anthony Caval specializes in the mysterious fields of consciousness, near-death experiences, and anesthesiology. Anthony is a Stanford and Harvard-trained anesthesiologist, integrative medicine specialist, and physician influencer. Wow, I had to practice that pronunciation multiple times. Anthony completed his medical school training at Stanford University and his internal medicine residency at Harvard Medical School. He recently expanded his ketamine clinic in San Francisco to treat depression, anxiety, PTSD, and chronic pain. You can expect to learn about the nature of consciousness, the difference between sleep and medical coma, what are near-death experiences, the science of clinical hypnosis, the power of the biology of belief, and much, much more. Welcome to Discover More. Discover More, Discover More is a show, is a show for independent thinkers by independent thinkers. Anthony, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Can you explain to us what it entails of anesthesiology and why you believe in the healing potential of it so much? Fantastic. So you're definitely not alone about not knowing too much about anesthesia because it is the most mysterious branch of medicine. By far, the only runner-up would be obstetrics, where we just don't know anything about the development of fetus in a woman's uterus. Believe it or not, <laughs> we can monitor astronauts up in space, you know, hundreds and hundreds of miles away, better than we can fetus in the uterus. But that, putting that aside, anesthesia is even more mysterious than that, because anesthesia deals with our consciousness and deals with putting patients into a medical coma right up to the brink of death, not to scare anyone, but the reality is that you are very, very close to death, but it's a reversible medical coma. You know, a one-way ticket wouldn't do anyone any good for surgery. Anesthesia, usually the prefix A refers to lack of, and anesthesia refers to like sensation. So anesthesia is kind of literally not feeling things. And the goal for any type of anesthesia is to minimize the amount of unpleasant sensations that we feel in a procedural type setting there. So there's different tiers, like you said, anything from just local anesthesia, which maybe one's had in an emergency department, if you have like a laceration that has to be sewn up or they just inject lidocaine like medication, anywhere from sedation, like colonoscopies, endoscopies, hopefully you're too young to have ever had <laughs> any of those procedures. And then all the way up to the big baddie, which is general anesthesia, which is where you're completely unconscious. And that's the true medical coma where your brain, you can slap these little electrodes on it, and you'll see that it's actually not sleep at all. It's more similar to a coma than sleep. So everyone says, oh, you know, I was put to sleep. But actually, general anesthesia is nothing like sleep. Uh, you're not on the verge of death when you're going to bed at night, <laughs> the way that you are in your general anesthesia. And, you know, we, we know this from the media. We hear of like Heath Ledger, Michael Jackson, et cetera, et cetera. These are all anesthetic agents that are used in unsupervised settings where unfortunately they tip from that deep coma state into full-on death. And that, that is the one-way ticket when used illicitly and without extent professional, unfortunately. Yeah, this is very fascinating because anytime the topic of consciousness comes up, a lot of people scratch their heads like, oh, what is it? Is it inside the body? 
are we a soul with a body or consciousness with a body or a body with a consciousness? All these different schools of thoughts, right? Uh, can you describe a little bit in terms of how medical coma is not quite the same as death? And how, like, are you able to discern the gap or the proximity to that? Fantastic question. I would just say that sleep, interestingly, just to explain how unknown of a state that is, when people are taking sleep aids, you know, melatonin, valerian on the more natural side, or benzodiazepines like imazepam or Benadryl or any other type of like sleep aid, we don't really know like how much of it is actually facilitating your sleep because certainly you wake up groggy the next morning if you're just, you know, down in Benadryl the night before. So I don't think that's really restorative sleep versus how much of it is just causing a state of amnesia or you were just tossing and turning in bed all night, you just don't remember it. So part of consciousness also, it's tightly linked with memory formation. So you could be perfectly awake and some anesthetic agents will allow you to be fully conscious but without the ability to form memories. And that's a fascinating, fascinating state of mind. You know, in movies where they have people that have supposedly had head, you know, brain damage and like they're living their life with like a three-second memory, that's it. And seeing that in real life, you can ask them questions and you can actually interact with them in ways that <laughs> are very telling to how important memory is, particular short-term memory to our daily functioning. Because when you're dead, metabolic activity stops, cells die, and we have no way in modern medicine of reversing that process. So if you're unconscious, your cells can survive for some amount of time without any oxygen, without removing degradation products and like carbon dioxide, et cetera, products of metabolism. Every cell is different. Neurons in the brain can survive seconds to minutes. The heart can go minutes. And then eventually your organs die. You have, you know, heart attacks, strokes in the brain, kidneys will die. So anyways, death is death. Cannot come back from it. A comatose state means that systems are offline but can be revived. So in the brain, that's what we're talking about most often, you can have the brain either from an injury or from medication be rendered unconscious. But you can still come back online fully. In the heart, you have the same thing. The kidney, same thing, other parts of the body, etc. So there is a concrete distinction. How well can we monitor when somebody floats from unconsciousness to death is a little bit harder. The easiest way is we just slap electrodes on the scalp. And if you just don't see any electrical activity, it suggests that you're dead. You can still have zero electrical activity and can come back online in certain cases under anesthesia. We do that for certain brain surgeries and stuff. If you do that enough times, we don't really know what happens because those are very, very high doses and that can, it's a danger zone for the brain. And there's various tests that we have to do when we pronounce somebody as dead. It's not just slapping them in the face and seeing if they don't wake up because you can be comatose, but still alive, you know, and then you go into the whole question about being in a vegetative state, uh, locked in syndrome, etc. Yeah, I'm guessing the uh, any actual death, pinching nose isn't sufficient as a... Because <laughs> <as a, laughs> right? by that definition, in the operating room, I'm making people dead every day and they're coming back to life, you know, and I'm not doing any miracles like that, I promise you. <laughs> but you can pinch people's nose at your anesthesia. Heck, you can cut them open and they're not going to move, right? So it's very interesting. Unconsciousness versus death, very, very different. I think um, death is a very fascinating concept for a lot of people, right? Even in Nietzschean philosophy, when he declared God is dead uh, in the light of the face of nihilism, he talks about like the only contract you sign when you're born into this world, that contract has two clauses on it is one, life is full of suffering. The second clause is you will die. So the only known guaranteed certainty that we're born into this container of life 
is that you will die. And it is the end all be all. That's why I think this is a fascinating conversation because many people have questions about death. So how do you like explain, maybe even from your own operating room, how do you explain thousands and thousands of near death experiences where people were fully declared as medically dead, as you said, but they came back. What is that? Like, how can we interpret such near-death experience? Yeah, near-death is going to be different from being dead and coming back to life. So, what we typically call near-death is when somebody was unconscious without a heartbeat for seconds or sometimes minutes. We do CPR, we inject medications, and they come back, but their cells never die. When the cells are dead, I am not aware of any cells that have come back to life after being dead. Like when the brain starts to rot, which is what happens when you're dead, that's the definition of death is where irreversible cessation of metabolic activity. So irreversible means it cannot come back. So no one can come back from massive death. But unconsciousness, I don't, I mean, the, the short answer is I don't have an answer for any of those because under anesthesia, patients report vastly different experiences when they're in e- nearly equivalent near-death experiences. When we're talking about near-death experience, it's you on the verge of this coma. Parts of the brain are remembering things. Parts of the brain are not remembering things. Parts of the brains that are governing your sensual, your, your senses experiencing the world around them are online. Some of them are not. Well, this is identical to anesthesia. In those moments before a patient falls asleep, some of them tell me they hear something. Some of them tell me they see something. Some of them tell me they feel certain things. A lot of them we can explain because it's like the IV medication they feel going in their vein. Once they learn what the circumstances were that they were falling asleep in, that usually helps most of the buttons click. Sometimes I, there's something that I can't explain. Sometimes people hear loud sounds. I have not heard anything that um, strikes me as a consistent pattern personally in the operating room. And even if there were a consistent pattern, typically it's chocolate to something that I know that's going on to their body before they fall asleep. And I have a little bit of skepticism in general because we can't trust our brains when we're fully awake and fully conscious because we're susceptible as everyone, you and your listeners know, to so many biases. So. If we were to begin believing things that sound supernatural or unusual in cases when the brain is not fully online, doesn't mean that they're not true, but just means that I would have at least as much skepticism, if not more. So I'm not, I don't want to like, you know, I don't want to douse any dreams or anything, but the brain is just too fickle to trust, I feel, with such low and numbers. That makes sense. So I want to go down into your profession and in terms of the OR, right, which you do a day in and day out. On your blog, Anthony, you had a blog article dedicating to the efficacy or the effectiveness of clinical hypnosis. And I think hypnosis is another concept that dabbles with unconsciousness, consciousness, you know, sleep, medical coma, whatever that realm may be. And I think that's a very right segue to go into. So can you maybe debunk some of the myth and fallacy that's attached to the hypnosis? Because, oh, hypnosis, oh no, I'm going to be induced into this coma state and I'm just going to prone to do whatever people tell me to do. Like, that's a lot of things people hear about. So what is it and why is it a very effective and healing tool that you have utilized in your own operating practice? Absolutely. So you know, this is fantastic. One of medicine's greatest secrets that not only is it so powerful and has virtually no side effects, free to administer essentially, and yet we're afraid to talk about it. 
I wish it were as sexy as what you're talking about in terms of like dabbling with unconsciousness. And it, it's not even that, I don't want to say deep, it's, it's a profoundly deep state that one can attain, but it's actually something that we can all do at home. We don't actually need fancy monitors, we don't need IVs, we don't need medications. With the appropriate training and guidance, one can enter a hypnotic trance to begin to heal themselves all on their own. There is a state that probably 90 plus percent of humans can enter into a profoundly suggestible state. It's not one of mind control, right? This is what we hear about in the media because it makes for a great story, right? Telling people to sleepwalk, telling people to give them their credit card numbers, but they yo-yo hypnotize them. Unfortunately, when Mesmer himself described mesmerism 200 or so years ago, he was using these terms. He was trying to make it sound sexier than it was. Talking about the magnetic fields and potentials of humans and manipulating these magnets, these magnetic fields with magnets. And it's like, he tried to go too far. You don't need magnets. You don't need crystals. You don't need energy spheres. You just need to guide somebody to enter a state of suggestibility, right? And we do this all the time. Heck, you go to Amazon, they can suggest things for you to buy all the time and they're, they make a lot of money. So we know that it works. But can we, instead of having people pull out their wallets by hypnotizing them, can we have them look into their own bodies and heal themselves in a state where they don't just brush off their feelings and what people suggest to them, but actually engage with them to control bodily functions that they probably didn't know that they could control in the first place. So, under surgery, you could imagine if we can have people enter a state where they can manipulate their relationship with pain, because pain is 100% in the brain. There is no pain meter out there. We have monitors for the heart, for the brain, for the lungs, for everything. There is no device out there to measure pain. And there probably never will be that works <laughs> consistently across every human being because pain is inherently a subjective experience. For many reasons we can go into, there's no controversy that pain is 100% derived in the brain. So if it's derived 100% in the brain, therefore there is probably top-down control, meaning that our, if you want to call it conscious efforts, can influence our perception of pain. And what are we doing in hypnosis? We're working on the suggestibility of us to control our bodily functions, pain being just one of them, or rather our perception of it. So a case that I had just the other week was a patient who couldn't tolerate general anesthesia because their heart was too weak to handle it. So I gave very modest doses of IV anesthesia. I did a nerve block to numb at least part of the pain they were going to feel with the surgery. Unfortunately, it couldn't do all of it, but it did a lot of it. And then we entered a hypnotic trance and was it 100% perfect? No, they flinched a little bit. Yeah, you know, I'm not going to exaggerate the effects here, but they were able to safely go from point A to point B. They had no pain that they could recall after. More importantly, they were just grateful and happy to have the surgery done without any harm to their body from the anesthesia risks that were there. Yeah, of course. So I am saddened that after a big fight with my partner, I can't just hypnotize her to forgive me instantly, right? And in like a five minute increment, that's not a thing. Of course, it just increases the suggestibility. It does not rewire someone's way of thinking. Well, well, hold on. I, I, wouldn't, I, I wouldn't necessarily throw that out the door either. With enough suggestibility, we can then begin to, if, if things can become habits, if we have a relationship with our emotions or the emotions of others in a way that through suggestibility, we have 
demonstrated that we can't have top-down control, we can then make these habits. And the power of habit, I'm sure you and your listeners will know, is profound. So if hypnosis can help soften the heart, the mind, break cognitive rigidities about what we think possible and what we think is not possible, that opens a door for countless possibilities, not just for personal healing, but also our relationship with ourselves and with the world around us. So hypnosis can be a gateway. I really wouldn't exclude very many conditions at all, health-related or personal or professional-related. So let's go down the train of healing potential, right? Because whether it's hypnosis, whether it's anesthesia or whatever that toolkit, they're just a toolkit to better heal our bodies, our brains, and everything in between. On your page, and I know a big mission statement of your brand, Anthony, is that you believe in a human's innate ability to harness our healing potential. Can you elaborate on that mission statement and what do you mean by harnessing our innate healing potential? Perfect segue, because clinical hypnosis is just one example of ways that we can change our relationship with, with our bodies and have a top-down control in how our body functions. In the normal state, our bodies are in this what we call a state of homeostasis, of equilibrium or a balance. But for any number of reasons, whether they be external, like the environment, which is probably most often the cause, versus internal things like genetic issues that we don't have as much control over, this homeostatic equilibrium gets disrupted. And that's usually where disease comes out. I mean, for example, I live in San Francisco. We had the last coal fire power plant shut down in the Bayshore neighborhood uh, a number of years ago. But there were women having preterm births, and these kids were having to go to the NICU, the neonatal ICU, so it's the ICU for little babies. And it's like, this is this classic example where there's an environmental exposure in mom that we believe is causing their uterus to have some abnormal relationship with the placenta and the fetus, causing this baby to come out early and the baby to have health problems requiring monitoring in the neonatal ICU. So there's some disruption of what would otherwise presumably be a normal child rearing process in ways that are far beyond our understanding, but we have an association that we can at least use as a base point to study. The easy thing there is that we'll just shut down the coal fire power plant. They did that. The number of neonatal ICU admissions plummeted. Now, obviously, this is association, not causality. You can't really like, you know, <laughs> do a randomized trial of doing this. But the, the point here is that we can control our body to restore its homeostasis by removing the insults. They're typically from the environment, right? So when you have a working body, it can usually restore its own homeostasis once you've removed the offending trigger. In that case, it was the fire, the coal-fired power plants and who knows what toxins are coming out of the shoots there. We can augment this sometimes with most often mind-body paradigms that allow us to reduce other insults that we're adding to external insults. The most common internal insult is probably not genetics. It's probably sources of stress. Right, because once again, the mind-body connection. And if you, if anyone doubts mind-body connection, we there are. I don't want to say an infinite number of examples. There's so many examples. Just the other day, one of the people in the operating room was just complaining about how every time she hears a baby cry in the supermarket, how she, she just had a baby, how she feels her milk coming out, and it's just like I was like, wow, I hadn't even thought about that example of the mind-body connection. So, anyways, when I'm talking about harnessing the inner healing potential, it's how do we unblock? the internal blocks we've put to our body regaining its homeostasis. 
they often come in the form of stress that exhibit at, or manifest as mental health conditions like anxiety, depression, addiction, PTSD, because those all have a very tangible effect on our body. Yeah, I like your, uh, I don't know if it's a medical terms, but I like when you use the word, you just got to remove the insults, right? So I, I like that phrasing and a useful concept for the listeners who want to dive more into the idea of the person and environment, like the epigenetics, right? It's about the change of DNA expressions through environmental feedback that is not part of your genetic sets. It's called the health determinants. Uh, it's basically seeing some of the qualifiers, some of the potential contributing factors to determining your future health outcome. So uh, that's what Anthony is in the realm of talking about. And for anyone who want to learn more about this, discover more about this, just look up health determinants. So let me ask you a question. So because, except what you just said, so powerful. Have you heard of the broken heart syndrome? I have not. Takosubo cardiomyopathy. The name comes from Takosubo. So it's um, the, maybe you know how Tako is octopus. It's called that because the heart balloons into one of these octopus traps, like a giant big circle, uh, spherical thing. And it happens, as far as we can tell, after cases of extreme stress. So this is a common layperson example. This can be lethal. Rarely is it lethal. Fortunately, the heart can return back to normal function without going into permanent heart failure. If you remove the offending insult, usually it's, a, it's some sort of psychogenic insult. Maybe the death of a loved one, or it could be a stress after a surgery. You know, physical and mental stresses are really one and the same. And this is one layperson example that shows how powerful an external insult can be on the body and how the body can recover once, like you said, that insult is removed. Letting the body do what it does best, letting it engage in its own innate healing potential by you getting out of the way. Yeah, so I have a next follow-up question ready for you, and this is right on the train. So one of my favorite content of yours through my research is titled, How Your Body Reveals Secrets Under Anesthesia, right? And then, of course, there's a book called Body Keeps a Score. That's the whole idea of that, how your body takes a catalog and accounting of every tour, stresses, the stress you go through in life. But can you demonstrate and just talk to us about like how our bodies actually keep score of everything and the way they are revealed under a certain condition such as anesthesia. So the truth serum, have you heard of this truth serum thing? It's all over the internet. People want to know, you know, is this like what the FBI uses when it's interrogating prisoners? So sadly, once again, not quite as sexy as you can just give it a, a medication and people will blur out everything. In, in some cases, yeah. You know, I can't share the number of ridiculous things that people have told me that are probably true. They probably never told anyone before, but here they are blurting them out to a more or less stranger in a room of more or less strangers. <laughs> so there's some element of just sheer disinhibition. Like if you get really drunk at a bar, you have decreased front, uh, frontal cortex activity. And you're going to say stuff you didn't mean to that might be revealing of how you truly feel. We all know what we're talking about here. Now, at a deeper level, the body itself has some scorecard. And we don't really know how this works, but it's literally like the body closing in on itself when it has unprocessed traumas, unprocessed triggers of depression or anxiety that aren't manifest if the body and mind aren't ready to let it out. Under anesthesia, it's not a one-to-one, -one, but it 
certainly there's a correlation that I and many other practitioners have noticed that when patients start to descend into different levels of consciousness, their brain is disinhibited, their body is disinhibited. And for different reasons that we can hypothesize about, the body reacts unusually to anesthesia medications when it has certain traumas on board. Now, one relatively easy reason to understand why is that people with, for example, severe anxiety, severe depression, other mental health conditions are more likely to use drugs of abuse. Anesthesia and drugs of abuse totally do not mix well. And you can absolutely tell somebody who abuses any of these um, illicit drugs, their bodies manifest this when they're asleep under anesthesia. They don't have, it's not, not a truth serum effect here. Their heart rate, their lungs, their vocal cords, things act in ways that are like, huh, something is very unusual about this person's physiology. So very much their body manifesting it. A deeper level is that, oh, well, people with depression and anxiety, even if they're not abusing drugs, they might still be taking neuropsychiatric drugs, such as depressants, anti-anxiety medications. This also comes through under anesthesia in the operating room because our anesthetic medications also interact with those medications in ways that we can semi-reliably tell when they're asleep. Once again, they're not telling us anything. Their body is telling us these things. And then you have what I view as the deepest state where can even if somebody is entirely unmedicated but severely depressed, hyper-anxious, maybe holding on to trauma for a long time, are their bodies also going to like manifest this when they're asleep under anesthesia? Probably the least studied of all because we don't really, in Western society, subscribe to this hypothesis of a scorecard in the body, but it certainly appears that they also have exaggerated responses not only from higher dose requirements, and this has been studied in peer-reviewed literature. Um, so, for example, somebody who's hyper-anxious, they just have so many cogs turning in their brain, they need more anesthesia to fall asleep, sometimes to stay asleep. Uh, and then when they wake up from anesthesia, they also, in my experience, this has probably been a little bit less studied, but still some evidence out there to suggest that they tend to wake up with more emergence delirium, meaning that they're just completely unconsolable, even though they're not remembering, they're kind of like in this in-between state of conscious, unconscious, they are, their body is just reacting in ways that are very exaggerated. Arms flailing, hitting, screaming, crying, doing all sorts of things that they don't remember. They will not remember, but is still a window into their subconscious state. Man, that's, that's really fascinating because just the fact that our psychophysiological response would almost uh, tell on its own without us being responsible for telling. It's almost like our body snitching on us, right? Yeah, it is. Uh, it under is. the most purest uh, state. Yeah, that, that's really cool. I'd be remiss not to also say that this is not 100% accurate. There are exceptions. I had a patient the other day, young gentleman, took about four times as much anesthesia to fall asleep. And his reported drug use was relatively mild compared to what I would have expected. So clearly, this has not been rigorously studied yet, right? And there's going to be some observational bias. So I, we need to set up the limitations of this, right? We're still in the infancy of even accepting a mind-body paradigm like this, much less studying it rigorously in the controlled environment of anesthesia. However, there does appear to be something fascinating there. Fascinating. This is why probably for thousands of years, psychedelics have been studied because they kind of get closer to this question that we're in the operating room in surgery beginning just to observe as no one else has observed it before, right? <laughs> 
So you uh, you brought words out of my mouth. That's the next segue I want to go into. One of your blogs you also talked about anesthesia has a comparable healing potential as psychic therapy does. And as you just said, psychedelic or what you do in your profession, they're both on the, I guess, a gateway into our mind-body connection. Like, what do you mean by they're comparable? One way that we believe psychedelics work, we have to understand how the brain works. And I, I like to bring up the example of anxiety because it just affects so many people, even before COVID, such a huge global burden of anxiety. And that's really brought to acuity in the operating room because patients are, are, are nervous before surgery, right? They're going to lose control of their body. That nervousness and worry can turn into anxiety, which can then turn into a panic attack. And these are things that we just cannot have before surgery because they increase the risk of certain complications. And fortunately, they are preventable often without medications. That being said, I still do administer sedatives all the time because of the risk benefit, you know? That being said, anxiety is a fantastic model to understand how the brain works and how psychedelics disrupt that normal brain functioning. The brain is lazy, one, and wants to have control, two. These are the tenets of how our brain functions. This is why get-rich-quick schemes are so effective. Trying to solve a problem by what it does best, entering its lowest energy state, which is often ruminating and perseverating. Right. For ruminating and perseverating about the past, we call it depression. For ruminating and perseverating about the future, we call it anxiety. Our brains are great at spitting because they try to solve problems. And it's a good life skill. We want to solve problems so that we don't die of starvation, get eaten by a lion, whatever. In the modern era, though, we kind of, it's like an external disruptor to our normal homeostatic mechanisms. Our, it's like the whole high calorie food hypothesis, right? We want to find foods that are going to nourish us, et cetera. So it's easy for these psychological vulnerabilities to be exploited by marketers and unfortunately nefarious industries, right? Fast food, gambling, cigarettes, et cetera, et cetera. When you're under anesthesia, which is similar to a deep meditative state, which can be similar to psychedelics, you can disrupt these two uh, mechanisms in your brain. I see you nodding because I know it's your original question. So I apologize for going a little bit around, but I think it helps us better understand how anesthesia affects what's going on. Because when you're under anesthesia, let's face it, they don't have the same urge to control things. At high enough doses of anesthesia, you don't even care to control your own breathing. Not that, not that you don't like care, care, because obviously you care, but your values, which is what you're trying to control in the awake state, are fundamentally disrupted when you're under anesthesia. If you're worried about something 10 minutes ago, you might not have the same value to care to control it, when you're under anesthesia. And I'm not talking about like being under unconscious. I'm talking about the lighter step, lighter stages, what we would call sedation, which is more comparable to when somebody is on low-dose ketamine, for example, or taking psilocybin. So you're not fully unconscious. But you're in this in-between land where you can still have some perception of self from a different viewpoint. If people who have insomnia, which affects so many people, my patients, even not my patients, what are the, what are the what are most common things they report? They say, my mind's just racing all night. I'm thinking about things. And it's, that's just another example. Our brains are really good at spinning in hamster wheels, trying to solve problems that we don't have the solutions for. Because if we had solutions for them, we wouldn't be still trying to solve them. We would have solved the problem and moved on. It's in the cases of uncertainty, 
unfortunately, society pushes us sometimes to value things that are both uncertain and also probably not optimal values. And I'll just give you one example to bring this together. Let's say that you want a job promotion, but you're afraid to talk to your boss about it. So you want to have a promotion, but you're afraid to talk to your boss. So you know what you want. You don't think you can do it. You have uncertainty. That is the origin, the nexus of anxiety. And your brain's going to be thinking of like, well, what can I do to get the promotion? How can I get the promotion? Maybe how do I talk to my boss? Right, but you have uncertainty. When somebody can go into a psychedelic state, or in my case, when I administer anesthesia to somebody, they can renegotiate. If they're prepared, renegotiate, what are they caring for in the first place? I'm not saying promotions are a bad thing, but I'm saying that, one, you're renegotiating. Where is that angle of anxiety coming from? And then you can hopefully recognize that the lowest energy state can be something maybe more productive. In the case of meditation, a low energy state in the trained mind no longer has to be ruminating for severing. It can be whatever state of mindfulness, which would be non-judgmental awareness by the definition of John, uh, John Kabat-Zinn, a non-judgmental awareness state that we can default into, which by the way, has a totally different EEG pattern than the ruminating perseverating brain, the default mode network, as they say. And now you can really appreciate how the, through neuroplasticity, you can change your relationship with these devastating mental health conditions. Because it's forcing you to take a step back so that your lowest energy state is different and the values that you're here to control. Long-winded answer, but I hope that got the message across. Yeah, there is definitely a lot there. But most of your work, I reckon, from looking at from outside the container, you're dealing with patients who are asleep, patients who are not actively conversing with you. So like, how does that feel like? Because it's a personal curiosity of dealing with patients that's not a lot of your colleagues are dealing with. And also, how do you even approach rapport building to these patients who are under asleep? <laughs> Great question. I personally call my patients the night before surgery to build a rapport because once we've talked about the basics of anesthesia, the surgery, what to expect, breathing tubes, et cetera, that allows us in the day of surgery when things are moving fast, when anxiety is high, stress is high, they are most vulnerable for us to begin to address deeper, more deep-seated. This is where we can maybe talk about clinical hypnosis, talk about if the circumstances are right, talk about values and like what are we stressed about, what are we worried about, so that they can not only heal their body but also heal their mind. We're trying to talk about nerve blocks or a spinal or an epidural and a breathing tube all in five minutes before you fall asleep. That's just going to add to anxiety or to overwhelm the patient and not allow for talking about deeper things that may actually be able to be a durable impact in terms of someone's life. Perioperative smoking cessation is just one concrete example of that, where we can make the greatest change to somebody's health, encouraging successfully the patient to quit smoking through their perioperative experience. And that's, that's the best studied example, but you need to have trust in your guide through vulnerable scenarios if you want to maximize your chance of a durable change from that vulnerable scenario. So that's why conversing with them before their high is going to allow us to build that very serious and uh, beneficial trusting relationship. Yeah, that's a very good point because like in Stoic philosophy, we call it, do not borrow unhappiness from the future, right? That's the anxiety you're talking about. Anticipatory stress, right? You're like, oh no, you're stressed. You're, we suffer more in imaginations than in reality. So to that question, Anthony, what is a good list of must to do or a to-do list for patients or for the listeners, because surgeries are pretty ubiquitous. A lot of people go through millions and millions of surgeries on a daily basis. 
and especially having you as a specialist on the show, uh, do you could you curate a list of recommended to do list for the people before they enter a surgery to best optimize uh, the experience? Fantastic question. There are three parts to optimizing for surgery. There's the mindset, the nutritional aspect, and then the physical activity. And it's that order of evidence available to date that supports their efficacy. Meaning that the best bang for your buck is going to come from the right mindset, next from nutrition, last in the physical conditioning, that what you bring into the operating room will determine a lot of your outcome after. Many surgeons that deal with non-binary outcomes, not life and death, but things like, oh, is their pain going to be better after the surgery? Will often say that they can predict who is going to get better and who's not going to get better. It can be somebody with the same type of injury. For example, let's say you have knee pain. Just from knowing the mindset the patient is bringing into the operating room first is one of the largest determinants of how they're going to feel after, even with the same pathology or the same problem that's set in their knee and the same type of surgery. The other variables, like the confounders, if you will, here are going to be more impactful than the actual work the surgeon is doing. Often more impactful than the anesthesia itself that I'm going to administer. Because that's the mindset the patient's going to have to live with for the rest of their life, especially in a vulnerable period during and immediately after the surgery. So there's many things that go into optimizing mindset. It is not a one-size-fits-all, just like how most of our medications are not one-size-fits-all. Blood pressure medications, diabetic medications, chemotherapies. Yes, there's some general tendons that certainly work across the board on average, but surgery in and of itself is such an outlying scenario because what you bring to the operating room is so unique to you. Your past traumas, your past relationship with hospital settings. Maybe you recently had a family member die in a hospital and you're going to be hyper anxious, hyper aroused just seeing an operating room. How can I compare that patient to somebody who's never had surgery before or somebody who works in an operating room as like a nurse or something? It's like there is so much variety and diversity, your standard deviations are simply too wide to make real meaningful inferences for a one-size-fits-all. That being said, the more somebody is open and aware of cognitive rigidity, and especially if they have an interest and a curiosity, exploring something deeper, that can often make the anesthesia and the healing experience and recovery safer, more comfortable, ultimately lead to a more successful surgical outcome. Yeah. If uh, For every curiosity I said on this show, I'll be a multi-multi-millionaire by now. So I bet, right? I definitely subscribe to the healing potential of curiosity and what is possible once you enter that gate, gateway, as I call it. Let me just give you a couple of concrete things. Uh, sorry, I, I can't. <laughs> I don't mean to ignore your question. Just as an example of some of the mindset modalities that have efficacy that are safe and effective. Things like acupuncture, aromatherapy, certain botanicals. You always need to talk to your surgeon and doctors before you start anything, right? Uh, breath work, seeing your counselor to make sure that if you have severe anxiety or severe depression, that you're ready for it. What I do, like I said, talking to my patients so they begin to establish trust with their provider before the day of surgery. These are just some examples of the many mind-body techniques that you can begin to optimize before. But the one that resonates with you is not going to be the same one that resonates with the person after you that day in surgery. And that's why digging into this deeper, which is why if I can get more time with patients before surgery, you can and I can have greater lead time to optimize. I appreciate the context because I think it does matter. Like the nuances do matter. 
I definitely agree that mindset is the key ingredient in a lot of things and a lot of facets of life, especially in surgeries, it seems like. There's a lot of literature suggests the power of positive thinking. And of course, there's a lot of literature actually talk about the brain rewiring and the like the power of affirmations, the power of not just placebo, but having a positive, optimistic out- outcome would actually increase your longevity of health or would actually drastically increase your health outcomes. Can you talk more about that? Like, why is mindset such a non-negotiable to not just have a positive outcome in surgeries in your operating room or whatnot, but what is it about positive thinking that you think gives humans a higher potential than even what some physicians would perceive as at the moment? The short answer, we don't know. Because if we knew, somebody would have been making a lot of money on manipulating this the way that Amazon has, in, in all seriousness. But it is non-negotiable, like you said, for a couple discreet, discreet reasons. One, you slap headphones on patients unconscious under general anesthesia, not sedation. We're talking unconscious to the point where they're not going to move if they're cut with a knife. So this is the medical coma. Those headphones repeating positive affirmations, things like the surgeon is doing a good job. You're not losing blood. You are safe. You are cared for. Repeating these to the unconscious brain appears to improve outcomes, waking up with less pain, etc. This was studied the other year in a multi-center randomized control trial in Germany. They labeled the issue that it came out in as Dr. Strange, just because it just bucks so much of our perception of what general anesthesia even was, and more importantly, what's possible with positive affirmations. If you look at patients who are awake, so let's look at the other end of the spectrum, non-sedated patients. When I was talking about clinical hypnosis earlier, guided imagery is just one example in the lay person's you know, vocabulary um, of clinical hypnosis. It's a suggestible state guiding somebody through one of our most you know, used senses, our eyes and our vision. And there was a study that recently showed equivalency to 5 milligrams of oxycodone with regards to pain relief from a guided imagery session alone, 15 minutes. No risks of respiratory depression, risks of opioid addiction, all this opioid epidemic stuff. It only takes five days of opioid use, even after some like surgery, to begin increasing the risk for addiction. If we have things like guided imagery, which are in the awake patient, you can do this at home. You don't need IVs or monitors to begin harnessing the healing potential of your brain to just get your inhibitions out of the way. So we know it's effective. I can give you more and more examples, but we don't need to at some point because we have no pickup impediment. There's risks for anesthesia in patients, especially the very young and very old. We don't need to be waiting for more and more studies when we have a therapy that is devoid of such side effects. Cheap, right? It's not bankrupting people in this country. More than half of bankruptcies are attributed in part to medical expenses. What are we waiting for? We're waiting for the existing system to kind of get out of the way, right? And stop ridiculing and mocking a different paradigm to viewing our health. Yeah, some additional statistics to support that. This was about a year ago or two. About 80% of the medically related bankrupt people, they have insurance. Pervasive systematic issues in healthcare in the United States is very much real. But like, how can one go bankrupt adhering and trying to address some life and death potential health-related outcomes? That's ridiculous, right? Like healthcare and our ability to take care of our health should be a pri- not, not a privilege, but a right, at least that's how I perceive it. If I, I just got to say something else, if I don't disagree with you, 
I do, however, and this is one of the great realities that we are unwilling to talk about, healthcare as a right can only be there if everyone is playing ball. And it includes patients as being advocates for themselves. It involves the industries around health, which is pretty much every industry out there, also having a sense of corporate responsibility. Without responsibility, we cannot have power over our health. I have far too many patients who are disempowered, feeling that they can't control their outcomes, which is the opposite of everything we've been talking about so far, which is how much power you do have over your health. Patients are unwilling to accept this because they've been spoon-fed by society that they need external loci of control to attain some state of happiness or joy or positivity, which we know are integral to so many aspects of long-term health, what you were just saying a moment ago. And corporations have to be held responsible, right? And not just talking strictly about cigarettes and alcohol and gambling industries. No, it's, it's even more than that. This is not controversial. When we have industries that are fueling psychological exploits in the human brain, it is not fair to my patients for this exploitation to occur and then just to blame the patient at the end of the day, right? Patients have to be responsible, but so do the influencers around them as well. And I mean that wholeheartedly. And it is one of the saddest things I see in my patients who come in addicted, whether to opioids, to alcohol, to whatever. And I see their anxiety under anesthesia. I see a greater pain when they wake up, when I see them waking up delirious, completely bonkers, because they have put, they put so many chemicals in their body from the depression and the anxiety that society has funneled them into that their body is pouring out in the vulnerability of surgery. If other people could see what's going on, they would be absolutely aghast and ashamed that we let this happen to our patients. So I'm not saying capitalism is necessarily bad. We need to have incentives for things, I believe. But we have to have incentives to keep patients and our own bodies healthy because the human brain falls prey too easily, right? It's like feeding sugar to a kid. How do you expect an alternate outcome when you're exploiting an eon-old vulnerability embedded in the brain? It was there to help survive stone age type dilemmas does not work in the 21st century. Anytime we talk about healthcare or such convoluted systematic issue, there is no solution in Bay. It's not just a single thing. It's multidimensional. And there's a lot of intricacies going into that. And I understand that as a former policymaker, right? The big pharma, the billing, the insurance systems, and everything else. So um, before I hit you with the heavy hitter questions about systematic healthcare gap in the United States, so uh, keep that in your mind. I'm going there next because this is the natural flow of conversations. Before, I want to sh- talk about the vulnerabilities you described. So in terms of the lopsided competitions between the general public, consumers like myself, you, I guess you're a part of the healthcare system because you understand, you have the knowledge for it. The lopsided competition between psychologists in the processed food industry, because food is medicine, but food is also addiction, right? The way they're able to come up with a formula to give you the perfect amount of sugar, fat, acidity, all these ingredients to create this bliss. And don't even stop there with just a bliss point. Oh, so I just have to add, it's not even just with the food itself. The experiences, as you know, packaged around it. When I look at these ads around the type of super, around the Super Bowl for alcohol, which is inherently an addictive substance, one of the more powerful <laughs> addictions out there. By the way, the only addiction, actually one of two addictions that can kill you in withdrawal, 
we're not just packaging that. We're putting like sexy looking women out there with gambling around the outcomes of a sports game. You're making a whole package, substances, digital and food based. What chance does somebody have, especially if they're not aware of what's going on? And that is really what breaks my heart. It is just absolutely the worst part of medicine. Does it really matter if you're the best doctor or the best healthcare system, if you have the lowest or the highest copay? Does it matter if that's what you're up against as a physician? What can you possibly do for your patients? It's mission impossible when you come to see me for 5, 10, or 15 minutes in the office. That's what uh, my partner, who's also a physician, I always ask her anytime I have a stomach ache because she's in GI and I have a lot of GI issues. So I was like, oh, Becky, what is wrong with me? She's like, doctors are not gods. We don't have answers to everything. That's what she tells me all the time. So I think that's a very important to put on the messaging board that when people come to you or when people go to physicians, I think patients, because they're in an inherently vulnerable state, they're seeking safety, they're seeking shelter from the physicians. And I think there is that gap between the expectations and the reality. So why is direct-to-consumer drug advertising illegal in so many countries? Probably for exactly what you're saying, because you're preying on a vulnerable population. In the United States, we've even made direct-to-consumer advertising a BRCA testing, which is not just, I'm not downplaying stomach ache issues, but not just like, you know, a small malady like that. This is, these are women concerned for breast cancer some of the most vulnerable women out there. Is it a surprise that after Angelina Jolie's double mastectomy, that sales went through the roof for these direct-to-consumer tests for BRCA? Do people even know what a positive or negative test means for BRCA? No. Most physicians don't even know. It's so complicated that there's money to be made and it's preying on vulnerable populations, especially women for breast cancer, right? The pink ribbon is ubiquitous for a reason because it, women are so vulnerable. By the way, a whole, not I can go into it right now, but a sidebar of where the pink ribbon even came from is absolutely not what it was meant to be. But because the population is so vulnerable, you wonder why the NFL is trying to, you know, push pink ribbons to get more women viewership. It's just like it all, you can see when you step back how patients suffer at the expense of corporate profits time and time again. Yeah. So to the listeners, uh, put on your seatbelts. We're entering some tready waters in the second half of this interview. I want to enter the territory of systematic issue in terms of healthcare gap and also mistrust between physicians and patients. In terms of you as someone part of the healthcare system and as an expert at that, what do you think about this rising, this alarming rate of mistrust that's continuing brewing between the patients and the general public? with the physicians in particular? What a good question. It is justified that there is anger. It is misplaced toward physicians, unfortunately. And I, I'm sure you kind of know this already. It's what you're getting at. But we have multiple non-experts with very loud voices. We also have corporate interests that are heavily, heavily, heavily benefiting from the vulnerability of patients. And you'll wonder why some patients are upset now. And it's always easier to point a finger at an individual that you know than some, you know, I mean, you can also point a finger at a greater industry, right? But, and this is not a soft story for doctors, but yeah, a lot of patients are going to say, oh, doctors are just being paid off by a big pharma to say certain things. You know, I'm on social media a lot. I get this all the time, which is comical because in my content, I'm always emphasizing the mind-body paradigm. It just, it really blows my mind, one, how skewed 
people are out there, but two, how ready they also are to start going to buzzwords, which is big pharma, being paid off by industry, et cetera, et cetera. We've been talking about mind-body the whole time. The one brief thing we talked about for anesthesia and psychedelics, remember, we also said can be achieved with the spiritual or meditative enlightening as well. Depends on what's right for the patient. I'm not going to push meditation on the patient that it's not right for, nor should I push psychedelics on the patient that it's not right for. It's not one size fits all. There is some truth that doctors in the West are not trained at looking at alternative medicine in a fair way, fair in the sense that not there's a very little education about it because most of it is quackery and is not evidence-based, which is true, but also that amount of incredulousness does give us a bias against it, which is why I did so much extra training afterwards to actually learn about what's out there from Eastern medicine, Ayurvedic medicine, etc. But I always encourage patients to look for a provider who is not pushing their own agenda. All too often on social media, I see non-MDs making all these broad medical recommendations on things way out of their scope of training. Not only is this harmful, as I'm sure your partner has shared with you, but of course it's going to increase the distrust in doctors. Since everybody uses the moniker doctor nowadays, whether you're a chiropractor or a traditional Chinese healer, and nothing wrong with them, right? But uh, at the end of the day, is it truly within the scope of what you've been trained with? to be making these recommendations. And that's what I fear in a lot of what we uh, see patients consuming, which then leads to distrust of people that are actually trying to help make a difference. Like I said, making fun of me for being paid off by industry, when I'm pushing self-efficacy, this goes to show an unfortunate trend that, like you said, in COVID has come up. Yeah. And then a lot of resentment and anger, it tends to blind people. So uh, I definitely see the large misplaced emphasis on physicians where that scope of focus should be on the behind the scenes players like big pharma, big industry that we alluded to. In terms of, I guess, back to the first question of the systematic issue, right? What do you think is a most immediately addressable barrier or a gap that can we can gradually over time, because I am optimistic about the future, to slowly close this gap between patients to physicians and ultimately as a society bypass the healthcare gap that is plaguing millions and millions of Americans today? That's a, a very good question, one that I am not going to even pretend like I have an answer for. It's, it's going to be geography-specific and demographic-specific, likely, because the short answer to what you said about what the greatest thing is, is going to be education, probably, not just for these things, but also for those populations. Uh, my dream would be to actually like have a weekly seminar with the kids talking about the health things that we talk about, about self-efficacy. So if we can just get people to appreciate that they have more power over their healing than they've ever been told, that would probably make big gains. It has to be done in a demographic and geographic um, acceptable method. Because clearly that's, I mean, San Francisco is such a diverse neighborhood. It's not a one-size-fits-all. I think it's comical to me that, including yourself, like my partner, she also has a psychoeducation GI page. And I know a lot of physician influencers have had them on the show before. Every single one of you guys has a disclaimer saying that no medical advice. Yet all these undereducated, less qualified people with loud vocals, they feel very confident in their delusion that they could give out medical advices, even though the actual practitioners are very hyper aware of the potential impact of such advice. So I find that contrast very interesting. I mean, the answer is very apparent because we have licenses that are at stake. We have a high, high vulnerability, high liability. And that's what people need. Unfortunately, in social media, you don't have any liability when you're out there. Because if I get canceled, 
because and I lose a medical license, I am toast. <laughs> right? It's, I mean, I laugh about it, but it's actually very serious. It's very, very serious. And unfortunately, with people, once again, it comes down to responsibility. Responsibility for our personal health and corporate and quite frankly, influencer responsibility. Yeah. It's a collective impact requires collective contribution. Right. So I want to go into the spiritual realm with you. So I mentioned this to you before we started recording that I, I'm currently reading the book When Breath Becomes Air. Right. Of course, uh, almost a must read for all physicians out there or wannabe physicians. But in the book When Breath Becomes Air, the author Paul talks about how only physicians could truly understand the physiological spiritual men. So for you who deal with the consciousness, who deal with the practical medicine, who also understand the mind-body connections and very esoteric nature of life, because I know you're a huge fan of esoteric stuff even on your website. Do you have any thoughts about what he meant by that? That only physicians can truly understand the physiological spiritual men. The spiritual spirituality is very important, I think, to all human beings because we have a capacity to exploit this vulnerability for good in ourselves. And that comes up not only around the time of surgery, but also for anyone who's struggled with addiction, depression, anxiety, or any other mental health conditions. It comes up particularly in the operating room because surgery is like a hyper-focused and exaggerated stress response because it's nowhere else in the world are you stripped naked, made paralyzed, unconscious, given these drugs, being cut open. These are all, you go to jail if you did this outside of the operating room, right? So it is a hyper-focused stimulus that will bring out any vulnerabilities in you if they were there because you're condensing all of life literally into like a couple of hours. And that's where you can certainly tell people that are at ease with themselves, that are comfortable and may or may not have a spiritual, like, you know, religious faith per se, but have some structured belief in something greater than themselves that tends to show through. But I'm not going to claim or pretend to have that level of understanding that Paul did. Yeah, it's just another lens to view that life through. Simple as that. And people, believe what they want to believe. But I think having an additional lens to view life through just makes life more interesting. And it's very empowering because you get to view the scope of belief. You view whatever life through. I don't know if it's just a lens though. I think it's more than that because it's a lens that by observing things through changes what is being observed. And that's the premises of hypnosis. You can be aware that your body has stomach pain, for example. But how you choose to interpret that sensation affects the underlying biology, affects the underlying neurochemistry. And this is one difference. I think we talked about it earlier where when people talk about optimism versus delusion, the difference when we're looking at our body is that being optimistic is not being necessarily delusional because your choice to be optimistic impacts the underlying biological activity. So you know when they say like in physics, how your observation of what's going on fundamentally affects what you're measuring. For example, I want to check the voltage between two areas. By me putting a voltmeter between them, I'm changing the voltage a little bit by virtue of measuring it. You can't have an infinitely high impedance on your resistor. You're going to drain a little bit of voltage away when you measure it. But the same thing happens when you're observing not the voltage of your body, but any other process in your body. Let's ride this train in a weird connection way. Stay with me. So in terms of observing through, 
you know, what actually happens on the other side of observation, which is a reality, right? I'm going to talk about the hedonistic treadmill idea that we talked about last time, like a few weeks ago. So I think a lot of people have this illusion that whatever they're chasing in life, once they get there, life gets magically better. Insert new job, new partner, new house, new car, X, Y, and Z. And that's the hedonistic treadmill, right? Whatever you rise, your internal metrics of satisfactions increases. But after six months, a year, that baseline goes back to the original point. That's why it's a forever lifelong treadmill. We're always climbing up, chasing after, but it resumes to normalcy after a while. So for you, Anthony, did life get magically better once you became an attending? You became board certified because you talked about that as your highest achievements because it's such a cumbersome and tedious and unknown process. Or did it get more stressful because now you're legally and clinically responsible for the death of your patients? Great question. And so relevant to what we were talking about earlier about laziness and control. The hedonistic treadmill is just is a very powerful uh, example, allegory of if you value things that are always in the future, that's a couple feet ahead of you, you're always going to be ruminating and perseverating to try to get to that. And that's why psychedelics, meditation, spiritual awakening, anesthesia can all help us reevaluate what we value so we don't fall into that. Uh, but to answer your question, life did get a heck of a lot better for me, a hundred percent. That being said, it is so easy to fall in to traps of forgetting what we had accomplished. And I don't know if it was Oprah or someone who said that, remember everything that you have now is something that you were wishing for before, wishing for in the past. Not everything, but you know, how many of the things that you have now are things that you wished for in the past? And I have, as I'm sure you have and your listeners have all had experiences where we forget that, oh my gosh, I was dreaming for this for years. And, and then within a couple of weeks or months or years, I forgot that I had ever gotten it. And we focus on new things. And I've had that personally a lot. Um, trying to personally for me, after I put the stamp on board certification and finished all of my Eastern medicine training and all that stuff. I tried to train in educating over social media, and that's just been very challenging, as I'm sure you can uh, commiserate with there. And sometimes I said to take a step back and be like, you know, is this, let's not forget everything, like you just said so beautifully, this treadmill. Let's be very careful what we're choosing to value that our brain is trying to control so that we don't spiral. And it's one of these, like, these mysteries of why our brain in trying to solve problems and spinning will spin itself out of control. It's not like a mystery. It's just so funny how by trying to control, we lose control. Yeah. It's the, uh, not just normalcy bias, but when we get comfortable in our new positions, you really forget that you've worked so hard to get there. And David Cho, a great LA world-renowned, the second richest artist of all time from $350 million from Facebook stocks, he talks about, he calls it process porn. Everything becomes process. Everything becomes about optimizations. And that's also addiction for a lot of type A driven people, right? You're like, oh, always process, process, process. But that could also be very dangerous and has tremendous downside as well. And do you see the words that are coming up here? Cognitive rigidity, addiction. These are all coming from the same human vulnerability. Uh, addiction, by definition, Short-term gain, long-term harm, can't hit the abort button, 
so much. It's not just gambling, not just alcohol, sex, shopping, success, all these things that we're choosing either from our own selves choosing a value or society has imparted on us by neurocognitive hijacking of our known vulnerabilities puts us into these rigid loops. That, I believe, is the single most powerful thing every human being will benefit from. It's hard to put that into so few words, right? When people are dying of starvation and you know, crime. And there's, I get that obviously we have to be context sensitive. But as a whole, if we're looking at the burden of, in particular, mental health disorders, which impact our physical body, like I told you, under anesthesia, I hope no one is doubting the mind-body connection after listening to us here, right? So given that they're one and the same, and the mental health burden is so incredibly high and only going to go higher and higher, that if we can hit the abort button, soften the heart, soften what we perceive to be our limitations, don't seek love, seek the barriers you have placed to love. And that is what these experiences can help us gain. And it's not something that I can feed you. Psychedelics are so attractive because they can allow you to discover it for yourself. Anesthesia can help you, the guide, discover it for yourself, right? It all comes down to your innate healing potential. That's why I never want to stray too far from that message. And it comes down to a spirituality for some religious people. For me personally, yes, it's one of the blessings we have from the creator that we have such a powerful innate healing potential. Sure, there might be an evolutionary reason for it as well. I'm not saying there's not, but it is incredible just how much power. So ask yourself the next time you find yourself in a process loop or whatever type of optimization you're doing here, is this something that is short-term gain, long-term harm? Yeah, the power of discernment, and I think that's where empowerment begins, is when you have discerned your triggers, what ticks you off, what gives you joy, then you can reoperatize whatever you operate from. Otherwise, like, you can't really operate from lack of awareness. That's what awareness means by nature. Uh, that's very, very powerful words. Um, so speaking of choice, I want to zoom in on your choice, right? You talked about we always have a choice in our decisions. We always have a choice in what values we want to put our baskets in or our eggs in or the basket. I know that uh, in our quality process, you talked about one of your proudest things is you learn to unprogram some of the cognitive rigidity you brought up to as an oldest child of the immigrant family. So, and I know, and of course, like Adam Grant, think again, he's a prominent uh, organizer psychologist, youngest tenure professor at Wharton at Penn. He talks about unlearning and unprogramming is always harder than learning and programming. But what are some of the choices you have made that allowed you to break free and to actually discern and empower yourself? One is my parents are from Iran originally, and there is a very strong mystical culture there from poets such as Rumi that speak so heavily about the vast potential within every human being. One saying attributed to Rumi is that if you can cleave the smallest particle, you have the power of the sun. And that really resonated with me as a kid because you think about like fission and how <laughs> Atoms, the smallest things have such an E equals MC squared. Blew my mind. This is like the concept of how much potential is in there. Two, somatic cell nuclear transfer, something I learned, I guess, later on in college in biology, how every cell in your body has the potential to clone itself into something new. Not every cell. So yeah, some T cells and B cells have modified DNA. Yeah, but like 
99% or the vast majority of the cells, how they clone Dolly, right? You take like any one of your cells has the potential for your whole body, every little cell. The greatest redwood tree or sequoia tree all comes from one seed. All of the material needed for the largest living tree came from one cell. Anyway, these examples are all over the known universe. I came across Bruce Lipton when I was in residency, who, um, author of The Biology of Belief, uh, and a couple other influential people that I was lucky enough to be able to, um, by name dropping in residency, <laughs> I was able to score some time to talk with. And they opened my eyes more to this vast, untapped potential that we all have. Now, some people always attack me. They look at fringe cases. Some children are born with cerebral palsy, with love for Amani syndrome, with, yes, terrible metabolic disorders that they're, they're going to die in six months. You're not going to be able to believe your way out of those things, right? Yes, I get it. These things happen. It's part of what makes Paul's story so heart-wrenching. He didn't do anything wrong as far as we can tell, right? Yes, of course these things happen. So, no, you're not going to think yourself. You're not going to hypnotize yourself out of everything. And this is why we need to be realistic and you need to not go after someone who's pushing an agenda. We know the limitations of what we do, but we also don't limit ourselves. Yeah, a concrete case study that I can think of right now about belief is biology is I forgot his name. He was a patient with multi-personality disorder and one of his personality was allergic to peanuts or tree nuts. But then with belief as biology concepts, I think it was under clinical hypnosis. He was put under the seducive state in a different personality, and he was no longer allergic to peanuts or tree nuts. Zero allergen, zero reactions. And just think about that. That means your belief can actually alter your medical or physiological outcome. That's mind-blowing to me. And I think that's why this is a very fascinating conversation because mind-body connection is short, but I think people underestimate the true potential and the capacity that our brain and our mind does have in our not just everyday life, but these very dramatic procedures, even like surgeries. Oh, yeah. The allergy one has been demonstrated multiple times. I'm not saying all allergies are like, once again, you get some people that attack you when you say this, and it's just not in the ethos of helping anyone. Cat allergies is one that Andrew Weil himself described as overcoming um, while on, I don't know if it was on LSD or something, but. <laughs> He had cat allergies all his life. At one moment while on a trip, a cat came into his arms and he was cool for the rest of his life. Never had a, a breakout ever. I mean, we know that the skin, right? There's several organs that are most susceptible to top-down control. The lungs, asthma, the skin, and then your gut. And is it a wonder that we have so many conditions that have top-down effects? So like in the gut, IBS. How many people have? And there's so many variants of IBS, right? It's because we don't have good medications to treat it because there's such a heavy top-down impact. Unfortunately, in our society, people don't want to be told it's in their head. But it's like, that's I think one of the most empowering things to be told is in your head. Pain is in your head. Obviously, things like psoriasis, skin cancer. No, not everything, right? And this is why people start to attack me again. No, not everything. You had a melanoma. I'm not saying you were stressed out you got a melanoma. Absolutely not. This is partly a learned behavior, just like how right, you said earlier, learning is easier than unlearning. We can learn and be conditioned about things for our skin, our gut, and our bronchi, our airway, and our lungs. Very easily, we can learn right, 
Just like how for our brain, anxiety, depression, these things become to an extent learned behaviors because our brains are just falling into the lowest energy state. The trick is to unlearn them. And that's why, what do they say? Show me a kid who's seven years old. I'll show you the adult they're going to become. These become ingrained in childhood. And it's part of the spiritual journey to reflect who we think we are. I think the greatest accomplishment we can do is not only to learn what our potential is, but to also de-identify with what we think we are, who we think we are, because labels and identities inherently limit our potential. And of course, like there's so much in the gray, right? Like off-white, the gray area, the nuances. But I think your message is uh, very straightforward. And I really appreciate the nuances of that as well. And there's just such practical application in terms of ACEs or adverse childhood experiences. I'm sure you're familiar with them very well. I'm sure your listeners are. But I do not believe it's a coincidence that so much of our long-term health, not just mental health, not just susceptibility to alcoholism, addictions, gambling, etc., but also heart health, <laughs> liver health, lung health. Yes, partly because of the interplay of those organs with uh, addiction problems. I get that. But more than that, adverse childhood experiences have an outsized impact on our health for the rest of our lives. These come down to rigidities, which, which are coming from what we're exposed to in our most malleable, plastic, and influential periods of our life. So that's why I try to use the word lifestyle modifiable instead of lifestyle choices. They are choices. I think we do need to own the choice might not be fair, right? There's a difference between having a choice and not having a choice. We have a choice. It's not fair always. But more that we can not <laughs> be slave to cognitive habit loops and rigidities, the greater chance we have at making that choice more fair to unlock the inner healing potential. Yeah, it's the idea that it's not your fault when bad thing happens to you, but it is your responsibility to react to the new reality by making better decisions because that's how you lose your power. The best way and the fastest way to lose your power, locus of power, is by not taking ownership of what happens to you. And that's a very sensitive statement and a lot of people get triggered by that. But we're talking about radical ownership. Uh, and in the, the book I want to mention real quick is this book called The Road, Less Traveled, it's written by a pretty prominent psychiatrist. And he talks about the biggest suffering that humans have is that they did not accept the fact that life is full of suffering. It's so simple, but let me repeat that once again. A lot of people are, a lot of mental health uh, issues and challenges are developed because they expect a certain outlook of life, or they even created this map that helps them navigate reality through. But then when a new information surfaces, COVID as an example, or when a lot of other new data points surface that contradict or conflict with your map of reality, people don't want to let that in because they're forced to either A, reinvent that map, or B, deal with discomfort of the unknowns or vulnerabilities. But the author of The Role Less Travel, he just said that, hey, first step before we do anything in life is just accept that life is full of suffering. Bliss was never guaranteed, as we talked about Nietzschean philosophy earlier in the conversations. But once you accept that, life gets infinitely easier. Because you're like, okay, I know what to expect. I internalized that. I processed it. But I think that cognitive process, a lot of people haven't done it unconsciously. Maybe they just don't have the access to the information, whatever that may be. But to your point, Anthony, I think acceptance, just like 12A steps, 
has to be the first step. And now whatever else comes after is viewed through the lens that, okay, life is not always peaches and rainbows, but whatever happens, I can deal with it if I have the privileges or the ability to. I'm going to quote Mark Manson on two accounts here. (laughs) What you said is beautifully put. And he has some practical ways of imparting that in terms of blame versus responsibility. He says, like, if someone drops off a kid on your doorstep, wasn't your fault. The kid was there, but it's a responsibility about what happens, right? And that's what life is like putting kids on your doorstep all the time. And then about the suffering. So, this is something, as you know, for eons, we've been talking about pain and suffering. It's such a fundamental part of the Buddhist philosophy. One way that Mark put it that I really appreciated is like, life is all problems. Hopefully, you trade some problems for problems that you're more okay with. And he makes the example of money problems. A homeless person's got money problems. Warren Buffett's got money problems. What problems are you going to be more okay with handling? And that, for me, was a very practical part. Problems or aka suffering, relatively synonymous in this context. Let's go down to the, in terms of allocating the amount of fucks to give in life, in terms of our choice to place amount of eggs into whatever baskets that is aligned with who we are. As you said earlier, right now you're in the basket of social media. You're expanding your brand, your website, your blog. You're doing a bunch of podcast media appearances, giving speeches, sharing incredible patient stories to millions on social media and so on. Like, A, when is it enough for you, Anthony? And B, like, what do you think about everyone being this multivariable beings that we don't have to be in one box, uh, segueing into our previous discussion? What a powerful question that I think everybody benefits from revisiting on a regular, if not daily basis. I was talking to Paul Dolman the other week, and the way he said it is, I've said it the same way in the past, and I really appreciate the way he said it. Death is inevitable, like you said, right? The one surety. The one only absolute guarantee. Yet most of us are afraid to talk about it clearly. Society makes, I mean, huge money off of trying to push that off and help give us um, <laughs> ways to forget about it, right? Through drugs, alcohol, addiction, etc. I mean, some of them are more wholesome than other habits, right? But things to help us forget about this and push it off as long as we can. Are we ready to die? Right? I know it sounds like a cliche, cheesy question. I get that, right? From the readings of others, like you said, literature is so powerful to transcend time, location, language, culture, etc. What do those who appear to have been as ready for death as they're ever going to be, how do they describe their state of existence? It doesn't seem to be one of much anxiety or worry or fear or grieving. It tends to be one awareness, gratitude. So when we're asking ourselves, when, what is enough? What is enough? I don't know if there is... If it's wise to necessarily put a stake in the ground and say this is enough as much as being grateful for what we have and distinguishing between wants and needs at every moment of our life. Because if sadness is the absence of our needs and joy is having what we want, are we letting our wants turn into needs and silently hijacking our mental state and letting us fall into sadness more often than we should be otherwise? Right? and not regularly revisiting needs versus wants. There's a second part of your question about multivariable um, and, and being in a box. And I think that's just a, such a personal question. My wife is an emergency room doctor, and she's had heck of a time during COVID, as you can imagine. She doesn't really care to share about these 
things on social media and she's a fantastic doctor. She does what she loves best. She likes being in the emergency department. And my values are going to be to some level different than hers. We hope we have shared values. Like Mark says, non-shitty values, right? Integrity, honesty, gratitude, uh, altruism, et cetera. Things that are not dependent on external side of control. <laughs> curiosity, right? What your curiosity is probably the best value we can have. Whatever box that puts us in is probably fun as long as we are engaged in a growth mindset and curious. So this is a personal curiosity and I feel like I could have started the show with this question, but in terms of being okay being inside of certain boxes, as long as you uphold curiosity, growth mindset, never wanting to be complacent, right? And I think this question ties up everything we talked about. Like what does being a doctor mean to you? In this age of misinformations, so to you, like as the guest of this week, how would you contextualize and what does being a doctor truly mean to you? Because you are a multivariable human doing many different fascinating things all at the same time. Having the privilege to spark the enlightenment with the eyes of those we care for. Yeah, that's uh, <laughs> yeah. And that wasn't rehearsed, by the way. That was totally not, I had, first time I've ever worded it that way in particular, but that is all it is. Can you say it one more time for the listeners? Sparking enlightenment in the eyes of those we care for. I'm sure you witness a lot of incredible stories. So I would love for you to share some of your favorites, success stories or just patient stories that you'll forever remember from your uh, operating room procedures. I think this will be fun and informative and educational for everyone. Um, I mentioned the hypnosis one earlier, which uh, very empowering. I had a patient once, and this is to never forget what this was like. This is a lady, um, I want to say four foot 11. I don't think she'd ever stepped foot in a gym before. We went to sleep, surgery went fine. When we're waking up, I have never seen a patient wake up with so much strength that the surgeon is holding on with the right arm, holding on to the patient's right arm. The scrub tech is holding on to the left arm because then with this arm, she tries to rip stuff out and then she tries to just bring herself up and I'm holding her down because there's still a breathing tube in place. I, Usually, we want wake ups to be smooth so that patients don't harm themselves, harm others, or hurt themselves as the breathing tube is coming out. It has to be very finely orchestrated. I can't imagine how sore she must have felt the next day, but that amount of physical strength to come out blew my mind. Absolutely. We were all completely dumbfounded. And this is the reason why shower thoughts are these walks you take without headphones, without podcasts, without music. It's a great source of inspirations and it's a great catalyzing time to come up with a lot of these brilliant light bulb moments because you, you truly this is so cliche but cliches are tropes where you have to create space and you have to empty that space just with nothingness and it's almost like idleness even though idleness is like one of the worst words in capitalistic america nowadays but you have to be idle for something great to happen and that's literally how shower thoughts work but uh, if you're always going with go 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 perpetual motions there is no time there is no rest there's no recovery, there's no rejuvenations, and there's no shower thoughts. There is no inspirations because you're caught up in the moment. So very powerful stuff. Let me ask you something. I haven't gotten a chance to ask you questions here. Tell me about your view on non-locality. I guess non-local, so like our consciousness is not limited just to whether the heart or brain independent, but not limited just to us. Original thoughts. Let's think about how rare original thoughts are. It's, uh, I had this conversation with the top 
200 business podcaster that was that will be releasing this coming Sunday. And we talked about how the only way to have true, true original thoughts is creating a brand new language. Otherwise, think about so many people before us. There's so many similar examples of um, philosophers or great thinkers sharing similar universal themes throughout eons. Without, once again, there is no Google. There is no Google documents. There is no Google voice or, you know, there wasn't any of that yet. How can we as a global as a humanity keep coming up with similar universal themes of life that's mind-boggling to me that's why for me whether it's original thoughts is a concrete example i feel like there has to be a collective thoughts and of course what separates the people is people who actually act on their thought versus some people don't with that being said uh definitely coming to the end of the episode i want to give you the opportunity to answer the discover more questions is twofold. Fold one, what is a domain in your life, professional or personal, that you want to discover more about? The second fold is what is an area or a domain or a topic in our respective listeners' lives that you want to encourage or even challenge to discover more about after listening to you this week? For myself, it's actually the question that you asked me earlier about kind of what is, quote, enough the underlying question there is, of course, what do we value to put our limited resources, our limited Fs, as Mark Anthony would say, towards, right? We have very, very few of them for a very short time on this planet. And there's many things that we want to do, many people we want to be with. Um, what do we want to do? What is enough? And that's something that I pray every day that I get a little bit more closer towards. What I would like everyone else to, listeners to also take away, of course, the same value I think will help everybody. But for those of you who are listening, who have ever struggled with a health condition, mental health or physical health, or know somebody who struggled with a mental health or physical health condition, and you've seen suffering, and you've seen uncertainty, and you've seen that begin to, in a very non-local way, affect not only the individual who is sick, but also those around them. Like we say, cancer affects not just the patient, but the family as well. To hopefully take something that you gathered from our discussion today, and see if you can apply that to help either your loved one or help yourself because we're all vulnerable in this together. And by acknowledging our vulnerability is one of the great steps to gain power. Like um, Mark Manson says, he reverses the Spider-Man saying, with, with great responsibility comes great power. I found that in the operating room with great vulnerability comes great power. I mean, vulnerability is strength. A timeless Brenna Brown, right? I love Brenna Brown. That's what she studies. Or also like Eleanor Roosevelt, her quote of, on the other side of fear is everything you desire. That's, those two quotes come up to me to some of what you said, but amazingly said. Anthony, where could people connect with you? Find out maybe other future horizons that you're working with. Maybe you can even share when you have a more clear answer of when is it enough by discerning your core values. But where could people check you out? Very kind description of the work that I do. MedicalSecretsMD.com is my website. The handles on social media are Medical Secrets on YouTube and on TikTok. You'll see a lot of fun stuff there. Uh, I also do public speaking and there's so much evidence to support how our mindfulness and our wellness can have giant ROI. And for anyone who wants to bring together stories from the operating room, <laughs> and how they can apply to yourself or your team reaching their full potential. 
you can always book me on the website. Uh, otherwise, there's plenty of free resources. Uh, this should not be an ivory tower stronghold of information. It's out there for everyone to learn. Yeah, the superhuman strength from one of your female patients. I will forever remember that story. And then I, th I think that's why storytelling is so powerful. That's why I believe in the avenue of storytelling because it's such a powerful vehicle. Because facts aren't just enough, unfortunately, in 2022. But if you can package it and deliverable, deliver it in a very receptive way for the common public, I think that's where the power and education really shines through. I think storytelling has the potential to really bring healing for so many people. But with that being said, uh, this is why I roll out the red carpet for you before I close out the episode. Uh, do you have any other parting messages as a public speaker, as a physician influencer? Drop the labels. Drop the identities that you've probably been holding on to very, very closely that might be limiting your potential. That's not true for all identities. Of course, there's nuances. That's why we're here. Uh, and I think we said this quote last time, but the wound is where the light enters the heart. And it's okay to be vulnerable. It's okay to have our perceptions of self be hurt and damaged. That's what makes us vulnerable. And with great vulnerability comes great power. So you do have more power over your health than you've probably ever been told. Lean into it and embrace it. Yeah, you have a very calming doctor voice when you're speaking from your low, low tone. So it's, it's very soothing. And also major shout out to Rumi. What an amazing mystic, right? But yeah, with that being said, please check out Anthony. I, I generally enjoy my research process, checking out his blogs, his content. Human potential is not just limited under the scope and the containers of operating room. It's every single day, right? In and out, when you're awake, when you're asleep. 